I'm going to take the bull case on AI being a thing and not a flash in the pan. It's basically enabled you to do way more with the same amount of time. And I'm a daily user of ChatGPT. It's just insane oh, how much it helps me with you know everyday tasks. Just with the fact that you're building your product like AI first, I think that's a real opportunity for lots of founders. Welcome to Product Market Fit, a show all about startups and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and today I've got an AI-focused mashup episode for you. I'm off traveling with my family and getting some much-needed R&R, but I'm proud to present this carefully curated collection of clips from prior episodes on the topics of generative AI. You'll hear about how these models work, perspectives of founders and investors on competition in the AI space, and whether startups can beat the incumbents. If you're new to the show, I'm hoping this episode gives you a good sampling of some of the amazing guests we featured previously and encourages you to go back and listen to those episodes. And if you're a regular listener, I think it'll make for an interesting listen regardless. Feel free to use the chapter marks in the episode description to jump to specific topics if you'd like. I hope you enjoy and welcome your feedback on this style episode. As always, you can reach me at hello at pmfpod.com. I look forward to bringing you more fresh content after Labor Day. The Product Market Fit podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to Growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now to kick things off, here's an excerpt from Episode 8, as Pascal Weinberger, founder and CEO of Bardeen, explains some of the inner workings of how these generative AI models work and what was so disruptive about OpenAI's release of ChatGPT. We have multiple different types of models. One of the big sort of superclusters of models is what we call deep learning. Deep learning fundamentally is you have millions to tens of millions in OpenAI's case, it's tens of billions or hundreds of billions of different nodes that are connected with each other. And then what you do is you kind of like learn through an iterative learning process called backpropagation. You learn the weights of those connections of the neurons. And it's very vaguely like all like, like computational neuroscience, neuroscience folks like hate people this, but it's kind of inspired by how the brain works. We don't really understand how the brain works, but fundamentally there's things that are connected with each other and they have weights that connect them and we change those weights as we learn stuff. That's the same way like deep learning works roughly. And then there's a certain type of network that we use that's called a transformer network, which essentially has, and there's various variations of it and like flavors and so on. But basics is you have a network that encodes information called encoder, and it encodes whatever data you give it, say a text, into your representation in highly dimensional space. Think about it as a dot on a map. Where it says, oh, the word high is coordinates X, Y, Z. And then there's this other thing that's called a decoder, which you give it a location on the map, if you will, and it returns like what it thinks the word is going to be. And that kind of like fundamentally, roughly, is how transformers would work. And then essentially what they can do is they can abstract things, right? So like high and hello are roughly the same thing. So high and hello will be close on this map, if you will, in this space that they encoded in. And then they they can encode meaning that way. And then what they end up doing is there's some sort of a recurrent architecture that they built around it where, you know, if I say a word, Kai, 
then the model knows that hello means roughly the same thing as hi, and then they can work with that in this like, you know, generative setting. So yeah, that's all these big models like GPT is a generative pre-trained transformer GPT. That's like how they are fundamentally built. And then what you do and where this like vast computing comes in is the more data you can give it and the bigger your encoder and decoders are, the better you can be at actually understanding. And understanding is a hard word to use here because you're not actually understanding, you're kind of correlating different terms or data points in the real world. So that's kind of very high level how they work. There's a really cool paper from, I think, 2017 from Google. It's called Attention is All You Need, I think. That's like the first Transformer paper where they kind of came up with, not like came up, but they iterated on this concept. And there was this one that's kind of like cited as the origin of this concept. But that kind of describes this much better than I would. But yeah, that's fundamentally how these systems work. So the important point actually, as you're using these systems, is to note that it's actually not understanding anything you do. It's kind of encoding it in this very abstract latent space. And it turns out that like based on the data it's seen before, which you know, in those cases, it's like anything on the web or anything on some sub part of the web, you know, Stack Overflow and GitHub. Turns out that these two words show up together in the same context. So they're probably the same word. And then that's kind of how these systems work. They don't actually know what any of these things mean in the same sense that you and I know what it word. So personally, I'm a huge fan of OpenAI, the team, all the work they're doing. I mean, it's amazing. I remember a lot of conversations with other people. When I was actually like fully working in the AI field, I remember having conversations with a lot of leaders in the field, like Gary Marcus, Joshua Benjo, et cetera, where we had roundtable discussions and all of us were saying like, oh, deep learning is great, but it's not going to actually get transfer reasoning done or like all these language abstraction tasks or like reasoning from images, multimodal reasoning, all these different problems that we had in cognitive sciences that we were almost sure wouldn't be solved with deep learning. Then Transformers came along actually a while back, I think 2017. And then that was kind of like a game changer, I think, because suddenly they showed with the first Transformer paper that was published by a team at Google that you could actually solve a lot of those reasoning and uh, basically at that time like embedding tasks with deep learning techniques if you take this encoder decoder type architecture that transformers are built on and then that i think was already the watershed moment at that time the big question was does it scale people kind of knew and the sentiment in the field changed a lot which is why you saw openai and a bunch of other companies just pouring billions and billions of dollars at scaling these systems that they haven't done it before because of this fundamental play shift in technology. And then the surprise to me really was 2018, 2019, when you actually did see the first systems, but other language systems that actually scaled. Having a bigger transformer and more training data actually produced almost linearly, sometimes even super linear, better results. And that for me was the big thing when it was kind of clear that, okay, now it's just pouring more money and now it becomes an engineering problem. How do you actually scale the system? How do you build computers large enough to train your system? How do you get the training data? How do you make the training data clean? How do you test those systems, deploy it, et cetera? So at that point, it almost became an engineering problem. And there were a few companies that realized that, including OpenAI. Sam has always been kind of very visionary around it. He was one of those people in the early days. I remember him talking a lot about like, oh yeah, I think we can get there with deep learning when everyone was kind of skeptical about it. 
it was always very persistent and like thought through the whole end game of this, where now I think it's just a question of how do you scale it. I think the interesting thing about chat GPT specifically is most of the functionality that it has is not new. Other systems, GPT-3 or also other companies, Google has their own systems, Facebook has their own systems, Stability AI has their own systems with Stable Diffusion, etc. It's not only OpenAI, they get most of the public attention these days, I think, because of, you know, marketing genius and all the kind of fuss and buzz that they built around it. But there's many other players that have essentially the same systems. I think the big innovation on uh, chat GPT was the user experience. So similar what we're doing with automation, where most of the automation things you can already do if you know how to code or like you know how to connect APIs and so on. It's all a question of how do you unlock this for the general population? And like we're trying to do this with this visual approach and like learning by doing, et cetera, making it super easy. And I think chat is an interface that almost everyone knows how chat works. Like, I don't need to explain to you how chat works. You grew up with this, whatever the chat platforms are today. So I think that that was an interface change that they made that made it obvious for the general population. Alexander Deretter, co-founder and CTO of Inc., shares a similar perspective to Pascal on the major innovation presented by ChatGPT and goes on to share some predictions as to where the technology advances in the near future. ChatGPT on its own is not a technological game changer. There is no groundbreaking new big AI idea. It's using enforcement learning with human feedback and creates a chat interface around GPT 3.5, their latest instruct series. On its own technologically, this is not the big revolution that everyone would think about, but it is revolutionary in other senses, right? So first of all, the whole form that it takes, the embodiment that it takes, the embodiment of a helpful assistant, right? This is revolutionary. Think of how much more helpful the Google Assistant will become in the future as a, not just something that you ask for, what's the weather like today, but something that can read your emails and summarize and reply for you and gets actual stuff done. The hypercharge assistant, right? I don't know if you had this childhood dream. I did having a robot that can do your homework, right? I mean, this is kind of it, right? It's like danger Will Robinson. And so you've, you've got that that's revolutionary. And then the other thing that is really revolutionized is a little bit unintended consequence. I think it took OpenAI even by surprise. It had changed the narrative and the world will never be the same, right? And so all of a sudden, everybody wants this and everybody gets it. And it doesn't matter whether you're a 70-year-old or you're like a 12-year-old, you're going to talk about ChatGPT and dream about how it can help you. And so those are the ways that it's been revolutionary. But that aside, what innovations? So we think about capability and intelligence, but we have to think about compute. So innovations in compute, better hardware means better AI models, both in training and execution. But you also have to think about cost, right? So one of the reasons that Google has not yet embraced large language models in search is because the cost needs to come down 10 to 100 times. And one of the ways that the cost can come down, and this is likely what GPT-4 will do, is by increasing the number of tokens that are used in training. We're all talking about the number of parameters, and that sounds really nice on paper, 
but it's not just the neurons. It's also the number of connections you have between them. So tokens require more tokens requires more flops for training the model. But once it's trained, the model does not increase in size, but gives you 10x improvement. So if you have 10 times cheaper, 10 times faster, and 10 times more intelligent, that's 10 times 10 times 10. That's a thousand X improvement. And if 2023 would provide a thousand X improvement over 2022 in AI, the world would change completely. Right? If we're impressed by ChatGPT today and the next year's version of it will be a thousand times better, the world changes because of that. So it doesn't always have to blow your mind with all of a sudden, you know, replacing Aristotle and Einstein. It can just impress you as well by being 10 times faster and 10 times more affordable to run because of the type of applications it unlocks from a business perspective. Right. Google has a, a large language model called Palm. And, and in that paper, they did a beautiful illustration, which is like, I think it's really captivating. You see like a tree growing. And as the model gets larger and smarter, little branches come off and it starts to develop new areas of cognition. Like, for example, you can ask ChatGPT to do some math. And, and like initially, it was not capable of doing math. But as it gets smarter, it develops reasoning, critical thinking, and new areas of cognition open. And as these models get more trained, the first thing you see is the basic layers of intelligence, so to speak. They, they get larger, 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 and then there's diminishing returns because you reached a certain point that they kind of have a little bit of maturity. We've been talking a lot about OpenAI's ChatGPT, but let's shift gears and talk a little bit about Google and the effects that generative AI will have on search. Here's Tom Tolley, who literally wrote the book on generative AI from episode 35. I think the thing that did surprise me was that real-time experience is, you know, how early on Google just stumbled. They had a hastily put together conference right after Microsoft had its conference and Microsoft looked like, you know, they were completely prepared and, you know, they knew what they were doing. And then Google seemed like they were kind of amateur hour. The irony is that, you know, as I did a lot of research on this, you know, a lot of the work in generative AI and the innovations have come from Google. So just because you're the innovator doesn't mean you'll commercialize it. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's a big lesson to be taken out of this. Kind of goes back to the 1970s with Xerox Park. They had Ethernet, they had laser printers, they had the graphical user interface, they had PCs, they had everything, everything, mouse, you name it, they had it all in the 1970s. And somehow, you know, Steve Jobs got invited to go in there. Bill Gates somehow, I think, got got a ticket into there to check things out. And then they were just salivating. You know, in fact, there was so much there, they couldn't use all of it. You know, they could only use a part of it. And then they went and made all the money from the PC revolution. And Xerox pretty much got nothing out of the deal. So I don't think that's going to be the case with Google. And in fact, I'm very impressed of how Google has put things together, and I think it's putting up a good fight now. But I do think that was a surprise, is that you know Google's been known to be very innovative and quick and nimble, but this time it wasn't, even though it had created a lot of the technologies. 
I think of Google as a very innovative company, and I think that the teams that they have and the people that are that they have around will figure out a way to make it work. They will take some time. There will be a year or two where the whole world goes, oh, Google's going to die and someone new will take over. But I think with those things, again, these systems are very computationally intensive. You need a lot of infrastructure. Even OpenAI at this point is consuming hundreds of millions of dollars in compute. So that's something that you can't just substitute. And then Google, obviously, being one of the largest companies in the world, they have data centers of enormous size that we can't even imagine how big they are and how much compute they have. So I wouldn't be surprised if Google had a bigger model. I think Google is very open about their research and what they're doing. So they would probably talk about it and publish about it and so on. They wouldn't necessarily release the model, but they would talk about it. But I think at this point, it's just, if you just look at size, then of course, the bigger company has a bigger advantage. So I think it's also hard to win in this indexing. I think the index that Google has built is still going to be of a big value. And just replacing that is not at all a trivial task. Not at all. And Google has been working on what they call knowledge graph for like, I think, 10 years at this point, which that already is a lot of infrastructure and knowledge and systems that they've built in this direction. So I think they have a good chance of kind of just replacing their go from page rank or whatever they're using today to this type of paradigm. I think they could have a good chance of doing that themselves. That's probably the opportunity for Meta, which is an open platform. It's kind of ironic because they're not usually known for being open. Because I do think there's a lot of companies that want control over their LLMs. They don't want to send their data to a third party or a potential competitor. You know, Apple is, apparently they're building their own LLM, it sounds like. Uh, they've forbidden their developers from using OpenAI systems because they don't want OpenAI to maybe spy on, their, on what they're up to. So, you know, there's a lot of data and privacy concerns. But if it's all open source, then, you know, a company can evaluate it and benchmark it, put it in a private cloud, and you can probably get, you know, better security and, you know, more control over your data. So that's probably the opportunity. I think it'd be tougher for some type of proprietary model for Meta to win this war. Because again, I think Alphabet and OpenAI slash Microsoft are way ahead at this point. I also asked Pascal and Tom whether value in this space is accruing primarily to those building foundational models and where opportunity lies for AI startups. I think it's, so it's an interesting question, right? Because it's, there's different levels of abstraction, right? One is OpenAI, for example, is not building a model for, you know, AI automation copywriting. They're building a general language model that can produce text for anything from, you know, medical to, to whatever recipes. And then it's on other companies to kind of build on top of that. I think the same way you can think about programming languages or programming frameworks. You know, a lot of people on the web use React today, which like, there's almost no point at this point to try and replace React. It actually solves the problem fairly well that you're trying to solve. And at that point, you're trying to build value on top of that, that like actually, you know, comes closer to value for users. I think a similar thing you will see with large language models that they will become careful with this word, but commoditized. It's an extremely valuable asset to have, and it's like an extreme power position that those companies are in. But like, it's almost like cloud today, you know, like there's almost no point in trying to build a better or bigger cloud than AWS. Like there's three or four companies, Google, AWS, Microsoft, you know, Oracle, whatever, like a bunch of companies that have their cloud systems, but everyone else is built on top of it. Why would you 
you know, reinvent the whole stack unless for certain applications you really have to like medical, military, etc. Then you like build the whole stack again. But 99% of us are just going to build on top of it. I think the same thing you're going to see with large language models where there'll be, you know, OpenAI, Stability, Google, Meta, whoever else enters the game, bunch of new companies that have raised significant funding so that they can train their own models. Well, going out and building a LLM takes a lot of money, obviously. And I think these systems get commoditized over time because what you're doing, again, is they create these APIs and companies build on top of them. So you got this underlying infrastructure, but you know, there's others on the market and they kind of do the same thing and they're all based on the same concepts, the transformer, the paper, the you know, attention is all you need. It's hard to differentiate at that level and then the huge costs. So on the infrastructure LLM side, that's not a traditional you know, out of your garage startup. <laughs> it's a heavily funded you know, company with a lot of data scientists and researchers and things like that. There are different foundation models emerging. Anthropic is one of them backed by Google. And then there's open source systems, which are important too. Dolly from Databricks is one of them. So there's a variety of these open source systems. But the problem is that as companies develop on these, there's probably going to be a winners takes most phenomenon. You know, developers want to go where there's opportunity. When the iPhone came out, would I want to build on iOS? You know, if I'm a developer, do I want to build on Windows Phone? Well, we know the answer to that question. You know, it was all iOS and Android. I think something similar will happen with these LLMs and developments where It'll probably be OpenAI and GPT-4 because that is definitely the top in the market. And maybe Palm 2 and maybe another one or two. But, you know, developers are not going to spend their time and their brain power on platforms that, you know, don't really have a lot of mindshare out there. So, you know, I, th I think the winners are already kind of in line of sight right now. But I think there's a lot of opportunity on the app side, and that's probably the longer term opportunity. But there's so many other opportunities, you know, how to create tools for managing data, tracking how these models operate, you know, like ML ops. I mean, there's so many different things and opportunities for startups beyond just building an LLM. You know, there's no shortage of things to do for this that, that companies will need help with. Leo Polovitz is a founding partner at SUSE Ventures and a brilliant investor. I really enjoyed my conversation with him in episode 28, and here's his perspective on some of the major changes startups will see thanks to AI. I think the question to think about is something like, we have GPT-4 now, and if you extrapolate to let's say GPT-15 in six years, is what you're building gonna be strengthened by that or is it gonna be like crushed by that, right? And I think there's a lot of companies, some starting today, some maybe that started four years ago or five years ago before the AI stuff really exploded, where you know they can be helped by AI. And we have one company that's, I think they're Series C now, and they basically like doubled the revenue in like six months because they found a great way to incorporate AI into their product and they have a bunch of interesting data to support that. But there's other companies like some that we work with, but a bunch that I've seen where it feels like the opposite, where it's like, well, you're building and you have this great vision. Five years ago, it was a winning strategy, but now it's clearly going to be replaced by AI at some point. And maybe it's in one year, maybe it's in four years, maybe it's in seven years, but it's not 30 and it's probably like less than five. And so I think that's a key question to think about for startups and for founders and investors is, you know, how will like another 5X or 10X or 50X in AI capabilities affect what I'm building? 
I think on a societal level, it'll cause a lot of job shifts and displacement, which is honestly a little bit scary to think about because historically, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like when we've had jobs evolve, like it's been kind of gradual. You have like horse and buggies and their cars come around, but it's not like one day you go from 5% of the population is, you know, a horse and buggy driver to zero. It's gradual. It's over time. I think with AI, you're going to have a lot more rapid shifts, right? Where like, for example, if you had a really good AI SDR, maybe you go from having like 3 million SDRs this year to a couple hundred thousand in a year or two, because AI has replaced a lot of it or something. We've had so many amazing founders on the podcast, including many who are building AI startups themselves. Here's a selection of AI founders sharing their perspective, in particular on how to compete in the crowded landscape of AI. To start, we have Tony Beltramelli, founder of Wizard, followed by Danielle Daphne, founder and CEO of Peach, Hikari Senju from Omniki, Asaf Yanai from Allison.ai, and Yaniv Makover from AnyWord. What I find extremely interesting is the fact that it's basically enabled you to do way more with the same amount of time. And I'm a daily user of ChatGPT. It's just insane oh, how much it helps me with you know, everyday tasks. And I'm a non-English native speaker. So like the value add is just so clear. And our developers also started using GitHub Copilot, which is once again, multiplying the productivity significantly. Copilot really works to just write code faster. And so in my eyes, the opportunity of AI for entrepreneurship is really like just to enable two folks to just do the work of five, especially in the early days where you can't hire an army of product people and developers. So yeah, it's really exciting and it couldn't be a better time to start a company, honestly. So A, I think there is a place for many companies and not just one, obviously. B, I think it's a good sign, right? I will be very political. This is a good sign. And definitely there is a problem. That means that today people, especially marketing teams, but people, content creators, universities, digital uh, courses, creators, etc., they want to make sure that they have the right tools in their hands to execute all the videos that they need to. So when it comes to pitch, and the reason that I don't think that at the moment we need to worry about all of the competitors out there. And I'm talking about the global ones, right? So there is something that I think that if you are not a video expert, you won't be able to understand. And that's the DNA of the relationship between the customer and their experts, the people that serve them. When we are building Peach, one of the things that we are trying to do is to build this relationship between the platform to the customers like a relationship between me as a video editor, professional manual video editor or graphic designer or motion graphic expert between us as a people to our customers. So Pitch basically wants to understand what's your need as our customers and to make sure that along the way, it will make the automatic process precise and much better for you and to get to know you like an expert that gets to know his client, right? It's very deep because when it comes to the product itself, that means to understand exactly what's the right way to take care of you specifically and not the other marketing teams. And this is exactly why when you use pitch today, you will get the automatic results that no one else in, in the world will get. 
because we analyze the content and we know the visual styles and we know exactly how your brand book looks like. And we generate visuals from scratch, right? So we have the option to provide you the visual style that your company needs. We analyze the, the content. We have the face recognition of the people inside your team. So we get to know you as much as the time passed. And the fact that as long as you as marketing team use pitch, pitch just become more precise and more personalized and the time to produce videos just reduce, right? And it's just like an expert. When you have this knowledge and the relationship, you don't want to leave him, right? Right. In the early 1990s, Yahoo didn't necessarily have any inherent moat other than the, really the brand, right? Like they had this army of contractors that labeled the web and kind of like what OpenAI is doing with their RLHF. They had this army of contractors like labeling the web and creating these you know, various lists. And that's how they you know, established an amazing brand and grew so quickly. And that was enough to get them to becoming one of the most valuable companies. And I think especially in an area where there's a lot of noise, like the internet in the 1990s or generative AI today, I think there is a lot of value in brand. I think there's also a lot of value in data. You know, data is the kind of bedrock in which generative AI and AI is trained on. And so if you build great data workflows, have access to proprietary data, you build great products that incorporate data into the creative workflows, whether that is marketing or advertising or in other areas, you know, bio, genetics, et cetera, like those will be massive modes as well. And I think, you know, just ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about just building great products. I think people sometimes overthink modes a little too much. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, just build a great product. And I'm sure if you build a great product and it scales very well and uh, it has a lot of users, there will inherently be network effects and scale effects associated with building a great product that customers love and, and definitely a brand effect. And you can always build these modes as well later. The most important thing for entrepreneurs is just to build great products that just, you know, are 10 times better than the existing alternatives out there. And with generative AI, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for building 10x better products. And so if you're just focusing on that, I think... I think that there's enough room for everybody. And I think that our space is still very much a blue ocean than a red ocean. More so, I think that each one of the companies that you've mentioned, I know very well, by the way, and there are a few others that we didn't mention, but each... One of those companies, they have their own different approach, their own different style, their own different niche towards creative analysis or creative insights. Some, they look at producing the videos to fuel A-B tests, right? Which is great, but I think it's looking at the present rather than looking at the future. I think that A-B test as a whole will not be necessary, will not be needed in the future. But still, there's other companies that they look to, let's say, build dynamic or build smart images or smart banners, for example, to be able to fit each one of the audiences or each one of the segments within your audience. We look at this at, in a completely different way. We look at it from the data perspective, from the insights perspective, from the recommendations perspective, and from understanding the entire marketing stack that starts from running a campaign, analyzing it, digesting it, running competitive research, competitive intelligence, analyzing it, digesting it, coming up with a brief that is ready for production. And then the cycle goes back and back and back when you produce the video and you push it back into your activity and you can measure it and, and analyze it again. So I think that each one of the companies you've mentioned and each one of our competitors, they have a different way, different style of doing it. But also there's the tech question. I think that the companies who will survive 
or will flourish in the end, to be more exact, those are the companies who will have superior tech, in my opinion. And superior tech doesn't come up in a day. You don't build superior tech in a day. And it requires a lot of different business understandings and business aspects from the tech side, the infrastructure side, the AI, the future. You need to kind of foresee the future, kind of gamble or bet on what do you think will be the future of this space in order to really come up with a product or a technology that will be viable within two years from now or even five. I think for us, and I think general differentiation comes, if you have a different vision for your product, it will come out in your product and in your messaging. We are riding the generative AI wave, and it's been uh, great for us. Even after chat, we did even way better. Like our cost per acquisition went down, our, you know, way more traffic and way more uh, signups and conversions. But we've always been based on solving the problem of you know, removing guessing from copywriting. That's been a problem before LMs. It's just a way more acute problem when you don't have a concentration bottleneck. Like if you write just two emails, then it's fine. Just A-B test those two. But if you, if you wrote way more. And that comes out in, in our product is well, we can score your copy and we can tell you how well we'll do for an age and a demographic, how to improve it for your target audience. There's different copy for different business goals. Like you want copy that converts, copy that engages. And... If you go into any word and you go into like something called the copy intelligence platform, you're going to basically see an analytics platform, your analytics for copy. Having said that, with generative AI, you can basically now apply analytics to writing. And then we have that AI writing assistant. So I think at the AI writing assistant, it's pretty similar in most like to copy AI and Jasper and all those writers of the world. Yeah, like I said, there's like uh, table stakes for leveraging LMs across marketing. But I think where we're seeing most of our growth now, and especially enterprise growth, it's more in the data part. And we don't see a lot of competitors there. Those are great companies that you mentioned. I think their vision is to basically help people. Everybody can be a writer. Everybody can now you know, leverage AI to make their work easier and, and better. While we want to go to an expert content creator and say, hey, LMs don't just write content. They really, really understand what works as well. So 10 years ago, or even five years ago, if you want to train an algorithm to understand what copy worked better, and you gave it tons of examples, or thousands or millions, it wouldn't understand what, why, why one thing worked better than the other. It would basically guess, well, this one has emojis. This one just has an explanation mark. The deep understanding of context also allows you to train a model and say, well, I know that when you sell Pampers to parents, you should probably slightly try to scare them to why they should be using that instead of like, I don't know, fear of missing out. And that kind of like a different view of the whole space. We're trying to solve a different problem. Our challenge is basically the market, not the competitors. Like how do we convince the market or basically teach the market that now you can take your best marketer and make them better, not just faster. Right. I mean, I have a problem with products that are basically using AI as an afterthought because typically the reason why we went for AI first is because we thought it was the best way to lower the barrier of entry to design and make a really easy user experience. But that means that the rest of the product is also thought of as easy to use. So the AI and the product are easy to use uniformly across the entire journey from the user experience. And if you look at all this AI trapped on an old product, I find that there is such a huge disconnect between the experience you have using the AI feature and then the rest of the tech, which is like, still most of the time really complex. Microsoft is like bundling AI on top of everything they've built. And that's great. I think this is probably going to happen at some point. But ultimately, it doesn't make Excel more easy to use. It's still Excel. 
And then there's this AI layer on top, which is, okay, I can automate some stuff and it's pretty cool, but you have this misalignment in some product, at least, between the experience of using the AI stuff and then the rest of the product. So if folks are building something that's really deeply valuable and they want to strap AI on top, it needs to be really solving a real core issue. It can't just be a, a nice add-on. For me, it was always like, why call yourself an AI company? Just talk about your problem, whatever you're solving. I think what changed, and I think it's a profound change, with foundation models, generative AI kind of models, you don't have to spend six months and have amazing data to create something uh, meaningful. And you can go into any, I don't know, incumbent or any space and I think disrupt it with something that, you know, move faster, be more accurate, be a generative, like an AI first company. I think that's, that's real. Not in all verticals and not in all categories. For instance, in our space, from my perspective, you know, if we're writing an article with AI and, you know, you can do a lot there, but you can guess that the incumbents will basically also have what, you know, a lot of value like uh, you know, Google Docs or Microsoft, if not already, like they're going to help you write these articles. But I think in other spaces, there's a lot of opportunity to disrupt just with the fact that you're building your product like AI first. I think that's a real opportunity for lots of founders. And finally, here's Leo again, sharing his perspective as an investor in the AI space, as well as a clip from episode 30 with April Underwood, former chief product officer at Slack turned VC investor. It's been interesting. I'd say like maybe zooming up for a second. After a decade of investing, I've definitely seen a number of trends come and go. I think like shared economy and like Uber for everything was one. Chatbots was another. Crypto's had like two or three waves now. There was ICOs five, six years ago. There's all the DeFi stuff in the last couple of years. And sometimes the trends stay. I think the generative AI trend is here to stay. Sometimes they kind of wax or they just disappear. The first time I saw a trend chatbots in like 2015 or something, like a couple of years into my investing career, there's definitely a little bit of feeling of, hey, if we don't make a bet here, we're stupid or we're missing out. And then I think we actually didn't make a bet there. <laughs> and then within a couple of years, we're like, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad to not invest here because it turned out a few companies were successful. But most of them didn't really pan out. I think that experience and a few others like it over the years have taught me that it's okay to sit out fads, right? And so you do want to be really critical and self-aware of the trend and actually understand like, is this just hot because it's hot or it hit some zeitgeist, you know, nerve, or is it hot because it's a real fundamental innovation or paradigm shift or something like that? And on that metric, I do think the AI stuff is like more in that second bucket because I think the applications we're seeing people come up with, they're rough. Like there's hallucination on AI. Sometimes it makes stuff up. Sometimes it's wrong. It's hard to tell. But like there's still so much value created there. When you look at something like Jasper, it creates a blog post. Maybe you have to edit it a little bit, but you just took a five hour task and made it like a 20 minute task. And it's not zero, but like 20 minutes is a lot better than five hours. So I think for me, what really matters is there value being created. And I think on the AI side, that definitely feels like the case. But it is also a tough area because I think for a long time, there were kind of inherent barriers to entry for any company, where at a minimum, somebody wants to copy you, it'll take three months, six months, whatever, to copy your product and kind of understand things. Now with OpenAI APIs and some of these other APIs, you could make a copycat of something sometimes within days or even hours. And so you really need an interesting perspective, like a proprietary data set, something else on top of the AI, where it's not just like a thin wrapper on top of an AI API, you're actually doing something else that's valuable and it kind of compound its you know defensibility quickly. Because I think those are the easiest to disrupt. It's the ones where either they have some interesting data set, maybe it's proprietary where like they have data nobody else has. Maybe it's more a matter of like 
they have public sources, but it takes a lot of time to like massage that data and make it usable. And they did that. And again, that's a good barrier entry for other competitors. It's like, it's an AI product, but there's something on the side, like a collaboration suite or things that involve multiple people where it's not just the product itself. It's a product plus a network, plus maybe integrations or an app store. And again, those are things where even if somebody copies the AI piece, the other stuff still takes a long time to copy. The other stuff has network effects. So it's harder to actually catch up to somebody who wants to take off. So those are some of the things I've been looking for in AI startups. I will say the types of experiences that can be enabled with AI, the way that it makes you question what even is the right interface for users for a lot of the ways they get information and get things done, to me, feels at least like the step function shift we experienced with, with the onset of mobile, but maybe more than that. And I don't have proof of that. We're in it right now. So we don't know. But I've been in the tech industry since 1998. And so there's a little bit of, you know, it when you see it, the things we've seen over the last three months as compared to, you know, the sort of rate of change we experienced for a while before that, I think it's night and day. And I think that I'm really bullish on the opportunities here. And so we're not just going to see tools built for folks that work in tech companies. You know, we're seeing new creative tools being built. We're going to see how this gets applied in ag and in industrial and in retail. And so, you know, the implications, you know, it's a lot to wrap your head around. You know, we don't yet know where the value is going to get accrued, how much of that is going to get absorbed by the folks that are the models. I think this is just an explosive moment for the industry where a ton of creativity is going to get unleashed. People are going to be building the types of things that we didn't know we were looking for in a couple of years. And I haven't had that feeling in a while. And I I sense that founders feel that way too. So I'm going to take the bull case on AI being a thing and not a flash in the pan. Thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed making this episode as it gave me the opportunity to go back through some of the amazing conversations that I've had making this podcast. I appreciate you joining me on this learning adventure. If you like this show, do me a favor and leave a rating review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen, or share it with a friend, especially someone who's interested in AI. I'd really appreciate it. As always, I love to hear from you, so reach out at hello at pmfpod.com or message me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O.co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey. Thank you.